Good morning. My name is Philip Van Steenberg. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I don't often dress like this, but since I couldn't be in India for the wedding, I thought I would bring India to Dubai. It's my pleasure this morning to bring God's word to you. My son, Campbell, who's two and a half, he's a big fan of the children's TV show, Thomas the Tank Engine. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. If you have kids, you probably are. It's about the life of several train engines as they go about their work every day. The trains work with one driving motivation. They want to be useful engines. If they can do that, they go to bed happy at night, knowing the joy of a job well done. When you think about your life, its aim, its purpose, would you say that you're driven by a desire to be useful? Do you think of yourself as a contributor to something bigger than yourself? Do you often wish you knew that what you're doing really matters, that it really has value and significance? In the passage that we'll be considering this morning that Josh Dean just read for us, the Apostle Paul is writing to a, a young man, a, a new pastor named Timothy. And he begins, as we saw, with this illustration of a house. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2, verse 20, 2 Timothy. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If you've been here as we've gone through this letter to Timothy, you will know that Paul throughout has been encouraging Timothy to be a faithful servant of God, a worker approved of God and by God. In this illustration, we see this house which contains vessels. And these vessels, they represent people who claim to be teachers or ministers of God. The master of the house is God himself. Now, not every vessel we see is useful or honorable to the master. Some people use their ministry in a way that dishonors God. Paul, though, assumes that Timothy, a true child of God who has believed in Jesus Christ, Paul assumes that Timothy will want to do something different That Timothy positively will want to make sure he is useful to God. That when the time comes for God to work his good purposes in and among his people, Timothy will be there ready, prepared, useful. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, God wants you to be useful in his work. And the Spirit gives you that desire to be useful to God. When the Lord rescues us from sin, when he brings us into his kingdom and his family, the response is going to be in the heart of the believer, Lord, I'm grateful for your grace. Now use me in whatever way I can be used to honor you. So the desire is there in the believer, but sometimes we lack direction. How can we be useful? And I think that is exactly the question that Paul is answering in the passage this morning. 
So the main idea of this sermon is, how can we be useful to God? Before we go further, just let me give you a couple points of clarification that I think will help as we, as we move through this passage. First, always remember that when we talk about Timothy and we talk about the commands that Paul gives, we must remember that Timothy is a believer in the gospel. Being useful to God in the way that we're going to talk about this morning is impossible if you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit to help you, you will never be able to be useful to God. And also notice, God chooses to use us, not because He needs us, but because He loves us. And because as a loving God, He wants to invite us into His good work. I think those are helpful things to remember as we consider how to be useful together. So if you, if you read this passage this week... If you study in your small group, you may already know and have recognized that this passage kind of breaks up into three sections, three sets of instructions. Each set of instructions has a, has a negative instruction and it has a positive instruction. So verse 22, verse 23 through 26. And chapter 3, actually verses 1 through 17, part of which we won't consider this morning. The negative instructions tell Timothy what to avoid, and the positive instructions tell Timothy what he should pursue. So I think that makes for a good outline this morning. First, we'll think, and how we can be useful to God, what to avoid, and second, what to pursue. And there will be three things in each, just to be clear. Three things to avoid, three things to pursue. So first, what should we avoid? To be useful to God. Well, the three negative commands that that Paul gives to Timothy all revolve around what or who Timothy is supposed to stay away from. So let's look at these. First, let's start with verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Before we see what it is we're to to avoid, this is sort of the overarching reason. We need to scrub our lives clean of the things that are dishonorable to God, Paul says. Paul is not saying Timothy should wash away his own sins, then he can be useful to God. That would undermine the very gospel that Paul preached and that Timothy believed. But Paul is also not advocating in the instructions he's about to give that we should just take them passively and sit back and expect they'll kind of automatically happen. No, becoming useful in God's house requires effort on our part. If you want God to use you to do work that honors him, you must first make sure that you are not dishonoring him. I think this highlights a a very important theme of the whole New Testament. The gospel does two major things in the believer's life. First, the gospel gives us a a new identity. That is, it changes who we are. And then it leads and proceeds to new activity. It changes every part of how we live. Every Christian experiences both of these changes. Our identity instructs our activity. Our activity, our life, confirms who we are as believers. They work together. 
So as we look at the next series of commands, what to avoid, we can only obey these commands because Christ has saved us and the Spirit is alive in us. Remember that. But as a believer, also know we can obey these commands. The first thing to avoid is sin. Sin. Let's read verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Passion is not really a positive word in the Bible. Passion is kind of a self-oriented feeling. It's a response to the things that our sinful flesh craves and wants. It's a thirst for things that don't satisfy. It's when your heart and your body and your mind agree, I want this so much, how could it possibly be wrong? This is not to say that all feelings that we have are sinful or wrong. God built us to feel. He built us to feel things deeply. But just because we feel something strongly as a Christian does not mean God is going to be honored by what that feeling leads us to do. Strong feelings can lead us to fall into obvious sin. So let me give you an illustration from my life. Sometimes in the middle of the night in our building, an alarm bell goes off in our apartment. I don't know why this happens, but it seems to happen with more than frequent regularity. It wakes me up, it wakes up my wife, it wakes up our young daughter and our son, our son especially, who is terrified by the sound. This has happened so frequently now that, I, that as soon as it happens, I bolt up in the bed and the first thing I feel is anger, seething anger towards the building that I live in and the fact that they refuse to fix this problem. Now, after I get up and help my son go back to sleep, that anger makes me feel like I then need to sit down and write a five-page long email to our management explaining in my fury why this is unjust and why I demand better treatment. In that instant, my feeling seems to justify my anger-filled note. But it doesn't justify it. I wonder what example might come to your mind of a similar thing in your life. We must always examine our feelings. One way to do that is to seek accountability and honesty with each other in this church. Open up your lives, and in opening up your life, include your feelings with that. Talk about what you desire, even if you know it's not a good desire. Bring that into the light. Let the light of the gospel instruct that. Talk about what you're hoping for. Talk about what you're planning for. Talk about what you want. Then let another believer ask you why you desire those things. What is at the root of that feeling? See, if we only talk to ourselves about the things that are our passions and our desires, then those things will always seem right to us. They'll always seem right. But other Christians, when they get involved, they can be a safeguard and they can help steer us clear 
of things that might actually be leading us not in obedience to God, but towards disobedience. If, if you're here and you're le- a leader in a church or a leader in this church, run from sinful passion. Your position as a pastor does not automatically protect you. It doesn't automatically protect me. In fact, it puts us on the front line of attack, I think. Let's make sure that the accountability that we preach to others is the accountability we pursue in our own lives. Members of Redeemer, I ask you, pray. Pray that you will be able to avoid these types of passions. But also, please pray for your pastors. Pray for fellow believers. Pray for your leaders that none of us would be led into temptation, but that we would be delivered from evil. If we're going to be publicly useful to God as a church, we must first be honoring God in our private lives. So that's the first thing to avoid. Avoid sin. Second thing to avoid are divisive arguments. Let's read verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. What does Paul mean by controversies? Well, judging by what he has said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, and what he says here, a controversy comes from an idea that may sound spiritual, but it actually has no firm basis in Scripture. Controversies only bring about spiritual harm. They only lead to fights and arguments in the church. And Paul says, tells us what he thinks about such things, he calls them stupid and useless, foolish and ignorant. Now Paul is not talking about biblically-based convictions. He's he's not telling us never to confront false teaching. We'll see that clearly in just a second when when we think of the things we're supposed to pursue. He's warning against pushing unbiblical opinions that divide God's people in ways that God does not actually divide them in His Word. Paul's words are then a caution to all of us. If our opinions produce disunity and produce conflicts in the people of God and in the church, these opinions are clearly not from God. And if our opinions and arguments aren't from God, Paul says, they may very well be from Satan. Let's read verse 26. Speaking about people who push such controversies, Paul is hoping that they, verse 26, may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What a scary warning. We all need to make sure our convictions have deep roots in Scripture. Unbiblical speculation is the devil's drug. When we swallow that drug, we become Satan's puppet to spread fights and disunity among God's people. Senseless arguments are not worth our souls. 
So how do we make sure, in light of this warning, that we avoid participating in such controversies? Let me give you just a few diagnostic questions. Maybe this will help us sift through and make sure that we're avoiding these things. Do you spend more time talking about things the Bible is less clear on and less time talking about things the Bible is most clear on? Has the gospel become boring to you? When the gospel is preached or talked about, do you find yourself thinking, yeah, I know that already, I want to move on to something else? Do you gravitate to teachings that seem to unlock hidden, hidden meanings of the Bible and prophecies in Scripture? Have you started wondering how anybody could be a Christian when they don't agree with you? And when arguments happen around you, are your ideas usually the cause? A yes to any of these questions could indicate that we are wrapped up or getting wrapped up in controversies. So the way out is this. Set your focus again on the obvious center of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is where our unity comes from. It is the thing that informs how it is that so many diverse people could be together for the same thing. The gospel tells us that God created all of us in His image, meant to represent His likeness, meant to pursue His righteousness. And the gospel tells us that all of us rebelled against our Creator God and pursued what we wanted in the reign of our own life instead of following and obeying and living under His rule. All of us. The Gospel tells us that all of us deserve death for our sin against God. The Gospel tells us that all of us need rescue from outside of ourselves and none of us by anything that we could do or pursue could achieve the salvation that we must have if we're to escape from the punishment of death. The gospel tells us that all of us needed Christ Jesus, the Son of God, to come to earth and live a righteous life because we couldn't. The gospel tells us that all of us needed Christ to pursue a righteous life and God's will all the way to the point of giving up his own life. The gospel tells us that any of us and all of us can be rid of the sin that plagues us and the death that stands over us if all of us and any of us put our faith and trust in the one who has died to pay the penalty for our sin, Jesus Christ. The gospel calls all of us to repent of the sin that is in our life. The gospel calls all of us to trust Jesus and Jesus alone. And the gospel gives hope to all of us that Christ paid the penalty, that he came out of the grave, that he lives a life for all of us so that we may also live in him. That's the center of our lives together. If you start resetting your foundations around that, I think you'll find that these other things, these senseless and useless things, will start to appear well, senseless and useless when they hold up 
to the gospel itself. If you want more help on that, if you want to check, check yourself, go to our website, pull up our statement of faith, look at the things that we as a church agree are very core and essential to the Bible's teachings, compare what, what you're believing or thinking through to that, and if the thing you feel strongly about is not among those things, it's not worth splitting the church over. It's just not. Better to stay silent on minor things and champion unity than to champion minor things and lead in splitting the church. So to be useful to God, we should avoid divisive arguments. Third, we should avoid people who don't follow the truth. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, let's read that. But instead, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. In verse 1, the last days are, are simply the way that the New Testament talks about that point of time that happens between when Christ ascended to heaven from his earthly ministry and when Christ will return to earth from heaven. So, Timothy lived in the last days and so do we. Timothy needed to be aware that there are not just personal and interpersonal things to avoid, but there are actually people he should be avoiding as well. Who exactly are these people? Well, they're not just anyone. They're not just anyone. They are teachers. They are spiritual leaders. They have a public, quote-unquote, ministry. People may crowd to them to hear their teachings. People might be really attracted to what they say. Paul isn't saying, everybody, every Christian, stay away from every sinner. No, he's saying that we should avoid dangerous spiritual teachers. Other things that characterize these people Timothy is supposed to avoid? Well, the list in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, shows that their hearts are full of sin. Even though they have public reputations for godliness. So what's inside does not seem to match what they're putting on outside. Looking godly and being godly are not the same thing. As a Christian, it's very good for us to entrust our spiritual care to someone or some people who will teach us faithfully about God and about what it means to follow Jesus. It's a very good thing. But be careful. Be careful that you don't make the decision on who you trust based on how they look 
or on the apparent size and success of their ministry. Size of ministry is not a sure indicator of faithfulness in ministry. Why does Paul tell Timothy to stay away from such people? Well, it's because their so-called ministries are, at the core, dishonoring God. They're dishonoring to God. They aren't loving shepherds that help people with their sin. They're wolves that prey on people who don't know how to discern truth from error. Their ministries are characterized by leading people into further confusion rather than leading them to the truth that produces real growth in Christ. We have to be realistic about the world that we live in. We have to be discerning. There are plenty of people out there who will distort the truth in order to extort you. They may seem to have an angel's face, but they may have the devil in their heart. The ultimate test to hold any preacher or teacher to, and I include any pastor at this church in this statement, the ultimate test to hold any spiritual preacher or teacher to is how close does their teaching follow what the Bible teaches? I think that's why Paul brings in these two guys, Janus and Jambres, into this discussion. Jewish tradition holds that these two men were present in Exodus 7, the passage that uh, Ben read earlier for us. This contest of the Egyptian magicians, wise men, and sorcerers versus Moses and Aaron. Now, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask. If you had been there that day on Exodus 7 day, and you were in the Egyptian court, and you were just a bystander watching this whole thing go down... How would you have decided who you were going to trust and listen to? You've got two, you've got two sets of spiritually influential and revered people. And you're Egyptian, so you might, you might naturally side with the Egyptian guys. There was no discernible difference between Moses and Aaron and the sorcerers. They were all men. They all had staffs. All their staffs turned into snakes. The thing that makes it clear is when Aaron's staff swallows everybody else's. Then you know, oh, Aaron's God is the one I should listen to. God stands behind his word. God stands behind his word and he stands behind and for those who are faithful to his word. Avoid the ministry of any person that stands on something other than God's word because God is not with them, he is against them. And if you're here this morning and as that list was read and as you think about the truth, maybe the false truth you're beginning to see that you've been believing, I invite you. God welcomes you to come and accept his truth that he offers in Jesus Christ. Come and repent of your opposition to God. And know the love and welcome and, and mercy and grace of God that he will extend to you because of the death of his son. If you want to know more about that, please come find me after this sermon. I'd love to talk to you more about that.
So when we avoid what's dishonorable, sin, divisive arguments, people who don't know the truth, then we're in a position to pursue what is honorable. And that's the second point, what to pursue. First, we should pursue true godliness with each other. In verse 22, Paul says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. We run away from sin then, and we chase after things that are pleasing to God. This is Scripture's consistent description of the Christian life. Denying ourselves, following Christ, putting off the old self of the old way of life and the corrupt and deceitful desires, and putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Again, it's gospel identity leading to gospel activity. Those who have been given pure hearts seek to live pure lives. Christ has washed our hearts clean of the sins that used to, to stain them and plague them. And now instead of running away from God, we have a true deep desire in our heart to sincerely run after God and things that honor Him. The collective desire of every believer in this room is to be godly and to reflect God's character together. A good indication that you are doing this, that you are hearing this command and you are following it, is if you love to be with God's people. People who love the, love the same thing, they will love to be with each other. We'll enjoy thinking with each other about ways we can please God together. We'll know the benefits of peaceful unity in Jesus Christ We'll share those benefits with each other. We'll, we'll see how being with each other helps us in trusting Christ together. But if you're here as a believer and you're struggling this morning, you read this and you know you haven't done this this week. You know you haven't pursued these things as much recently as you should. I want to encourage you this morning. You aren't running alone. God has designed us all of us as his people, designed for this life of the Christian to be lived together. It's a race that we all run together. It's not a solo mission. You're not out there on your own. You'll, you'll run slow sometimes. You may be running slow right now. And other times you'll run fast. Sometimes you'll see great victories over big sin in your life. And other times you'll feel like you're barely stumbling forward. People will need to lean on you sometimes. And you'll need to lean on people, too. People will see you running hard after godliness, and they will need that encouragement. And then there'll be times you need to look around and see other people running hard after godliness because you desperately need that vision of what the Christian life is to be. If you've slowed down in the race right now, it doesn't mean that you're out of the race. You might just need to acknowledge that you need help from others who are running this race with you. So, so how can you pursue godliness, godliness this week? How could you help someone else pursue godliness this week? Well, you could invite them to pray with you. Read the Bible together. Discuss how this sermon addresses their life and yours. And how can you, help, how can you get help from someone in pursuing godliness this week? Well, you could let someone else know that you're feeling weak and faint in the race right now. 
that you, you need encouragement to press on. You could ask for prayer for struggles that you know are going on in your heart right now. You could even simply ask someone to remind you of the hope that we're all running to. When I picture all of us, Redeemer, in this, in this race together, I'm encouraged. I'm refreshed. I'm helped to know that I'm a part of a whole band, a group of saints who are running earnestly together in pursuit of the life that honors our Savior. I'm encouraged by the sight of the finish line. Heaven is in sight. We're going to make it there. We're going to make it there together by God's grace. So let's keep pursuing godliness together. Second, we pursue gentleness that promotes unity in the truth. We pursue gentleness that promotes unity in the truth. If Paul had only said these three negative commands, what to avoid, then we might get the sense that he intends Timothy to retire to a monastery somewhere and convince all his Christian friends to come with him. Just get out of the world entirely. But verse 24 and 25 indicate, even though we're called to avoid divisive arguments, we're still also called to gently interact with the people who are pushing those arguments. So let's read verse 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Paul may have sensed that Timothy, as a young man in his youth, would feel a need to take every issue and every argument head on, as young men often do, including myself. Take it head on no matter how important or unimportant it might be. So Paul is just simply in wisdom helping free Timothy from that idea. I was convicted this week to see that I often take people's arguments way too personally. See, we can care a lot about God. We can care a lot about his, about his word, which is a great thing to do. But then we can go one step further. We can get angry. We can get agitated when people persist in what we view to be error, which may be error. And then we get sucked into the argument and it steals our time, it steals our energy, it steals our attention that we should actually be devoting to something actually a lot more important. And we stop thinking about loving the person in front of us. And instead we start thinking about beating them in the argument. Paul gives us a much better way to interact with people who are raising controversy in the church. He says, Timothy, maintain your Christian witness. Do what you can and leave the rest to God. Make sure that you are reflecting Christ in your attitude and your action. Treat everyone with kindness. Treat them all with gentleness, even if they are exhibiting the same to you. Avoid fighting. And instead, lovingly explain, even if you have to do it over and over, lovingly explain how God's word addresses their divisiveness. If there's backlash, if there's anger, if there's attack that comes from the other person back to you, endure it. Endure it. And endure it knowing that their issue is not primarily with you, 
It's with the Lord. It's with the Lord. See, we can either be the fuel that continues a fire that's started by controversy, or we can be like the wet blanket that just takes the oxygen out of the situation. You won't ever be able to change a quarrelsome person in their heart. You can't do that. No persuasive argument can do that. But you can help his quarreling from damaging the church. Every one of us can act like a a shock absorber on a car. When we come across the aggressive and abrasive people that are kind of like the big rocks in the road or the speed bumps, and it hits the wheel, we have the opportunity to kind of absorb that impact personally so that it doesn't then spread to the whole church and the whole church feels it with a major division. We do that by being kind, by being gentle, by being patient. Now, this doesn't mean that when somebody says something divisive, you should just go silent, just retreat. Oh, that sounds like division. I, I just shouldn't say anything. No, no, Paul says we don't retreat. We move in on it. We move toward it. We surround that issue and we bring truth through, through love. So make sure... First, if if you sense that someone is bringing something like this into any part of your life as a Christian or any part of our life as a church, make sure the first thing you do is clearly understand what it is they are actually saying. Don't jump in with a Bible verse before you've heard what they're saying. But also, once understanding, bring the word and God's truth to bear. That's your responsibility. And do it in gentleness and do it in love. Now this is really hard to do if our identity is totally wrapped up in being right. If that's what we care about the most, we're just going to want to win that argument. We won't think about other things, other positive things. But, But this kind of gentleness and loving confrontation, this becomes easier the more our identity gets wrapped up in Christ because Jesus is the one who, who shows us what this interaction looks like. He, he interacted with people this way all the time. And Paul says that Jesus may in fact use you in such a situation to help save a person from their foolishness if you're being Christ-like in your approach. Verse 25 says, God may choose to use gentle correction as the means to bring a quarreler to repent of their divisiveness. Would you rather win an argument or win a person's soul to Christ? The primary way to apply these verses is not on social media. It is very hard to communicate with gentleness and kindness through Facebook or the internet. We should probably listen to what I'm about to say. Maybe it's the only thing you hear this morning, and maybe that's a good thing. We should probably stay out of social media religious controversies entirely. I have not yet met anyone who was saved through a blog fight. But I personally have seen many Christians destroying their witness through angry, 
defensive and harsh comments on Facebook. We cannot control what other Christians do, but members of this church, let's agree that this body would rather be offended by face-to-face gentleness than our needless offensiveness on social media. Let's pursue gentleness that promotes unity in the truth. Third and last. We are useful to God when we pursue trust in God and his word. In, in 1 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, the passage for the sermon next week, that's really where Paul gives the final uh, positive command of these three pairs. So wait for that. Scott will bring that next week, Lord willing. Let's read, let's read just a, a little summary of that in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. Speaking to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The wise old Paul giving young Timothy sage advice again. Timothy, these passions, these controversies, these false teachers, they're only going to endanger your ministry. Don't get caught by them. Just stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to his word. When, when you read through this passage, it feels like you're sailing through a storm. I mean, there's these violent waves of passion. They're the attacks of quarrelsome people. And all this wickedness that surrounds us in our world, it's overwhelming. But Paul encourages us, find your refuge in the truth. Entrust your life to God. God is the master of the house, verse 20 and 21. God is the one who answers the prayer of his people, verse 22. God is the author of salvation, the authority over Satan, 25 and 26. And God always proves his power over his enemies, chapter 3, verse 9. And and just as a closing meditation to help us think about pursuing God this way this week, Jesus provides us the perfect picture. He shows us precisely what it means to avoid dishonoring God and pursuing useful, usefulness to God. He, he came to earth to honor God his Father. He came with a desire, a passion, to be useful to the work of salvation. He always resisted sin. He lived a righteous life of loving peacefulness and faithfulness. He never spoke foolishness or ignorance. He only spoke wisdom and truth. When God's opponents came to arrest him, he didn't fight. He entrusted his life to God. When evil men nailed him to a cross, Jesus patiently endured that suffering. In gentleness, in kindness, Jesus asked God to forgive those who attempted to disrupt God's plan to unite his people to himself. And God stood behind Jesus, the word of God. He raised him from the grave, swallowing up death, swallowing up sin once and for all. So now, as we look to Jesus, the risen Lord, it's in his radiance, it's in his glory that we can see the absolute folly of opposing God and the wonderful prize of pursuing him.
Will you be useful to God, the master of the house? It's not what other people spend their life on that matters. What is useful to God is what matters most for us, his people. If other people scoff at our pursuit of holiness, if they laugh at our refusal to spend our life on selfish craving, if they think we're weak when we show gentle love, that's okay. It's okay. We care what the master thinks. We care that he would use our ransom lives in any way that he would choose for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, in response to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to avoid sin, avoid divisive arguments, avoid people who oppose the truth. And Father, we pray that as your people, holy and set apart, you would also make us useful for your work, enabling us to pursue godliness, enabling us to be gentle, promoting unity in the way that we bring truth, And Lord, we pray that we would be able to pursue you and the truth of your word above all things. We ask for your help in these things, knowing that your spirit is in us, working these things for your good purpose. And in that confidence, we bring our prayer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.